0: are some of the most popular companies among American consumers. However, among policymakers in Washington, they've recently become much less popular for many reasons. Chief among these reasons is the concern that these companies become too powerful and need to be broken up or otherwise heavily regulated. So today I'll be speaking with Nicolas Petit about whether these concerns are well-founded. Nicolas is a professor of competition law at both the European University Institute and the College of Europe in Burgess, Belgium. He's the author of the recently released book, Big Tech and the Digital Economy, The Malagopoly Scenario. Nikola, welcome to the podcast.
1: Nice to be with you, Jim.
0: In the book, you focus on Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Netflix. Four of these companies are worth over a trillion dollars each, which is a lot. Some people like to say that every billionaire is a policy failure. And I get the sense that they would say every firm as big as these big tech companies is a policy failure as well. I assume you disagree with that.
1: Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, I do, and you know, my book is basically trying to debunk this idea that there's a problem with with bigness in itself. And um, the distinctive feature of big tech is not that uh, they are monopolies or gatekeepers or systemic firms. I think the the distinctive feature is that they're highly flexible firms and. Uh, you know they operate in this environments of, of deep uncertainty where a lot of uh, product and service recombination can arise due to the modular nature of data and so I think what's what defines them first and foremost is is that they've been able to overcome um, this deep uncertainty but also I mean there's um there's you know much efficiency into that goes with the size of these firms um, on the supply and the demand side and therefore we should you know get accustomed to a world in which um, the future of of the economy is in large-scale organizations you know none of these companies seems to me to operate in a in a risk safety critical area and and none of them seems to me to be too big to fail like a, like a bank so i mean frankly I, I, I don't really buy all that obsession with with bigness. There might be problems, but they're not in in the bigness.
0: How do they get that big? I think some I think some people think that while these used, these these companies used to be young and scrappy, that a long time ago, uh, that sort of entrepreneurial, innovative model that that made them successful, that somehow they've abandoned that model, and now they're big. Uh, by uh, buying up potential competitors when they're small, by somehow influencing Washington uh, that that now not now that their growth model is really crushing competition rather than uh, innovating and providing you know great services and great products to people.
1: I think the reason behind bigness is is really that they are providing, a compelling value proposition to users. And, you know, the best way to think about that is probably to, 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 to do a, a thought experiment, like, you know, how would we live in a pandemic 20 years ago without Facebook, Google, and Netflix? Um, and it would be unbearable. I mean, I myself live in Italy today, and my family is in France and Belgium. And it would be impossible to communicate with, with my relatives in the pandemic and the efficiency that we enjoy by virtue of these network effects is is the source of tremendous surplus the problem of course is that um you know people like you know like stories that things go wrong and uh, after the financial crisis you know we needed new culprits for the evils of the time and uh and I think a lot has gone into you know, looking at these firms as um, the source of a systemic problem. Again, I'm not saying that there's, there are no problems with big tech, but I, I'm saying that the, the, the scale of the problem that they create is much smaller than the scale of the policy energy that goes towards this sector.
0: Are they monopolies? That is the number one charge, that these companies are monopolies and thus action must be taken.
1: Yeah. So the answer is 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 no, and it's on the cover of the book. I say they are oligopolies. So I, it's a mashup of monopoly and oligopoly because you cannot understand these firms just by looking at their share of outputs in a narrow market like search for Google or e-commerce for Amazon. And so all these firms, to some extent, compete as oligopolies in a. Wide area of uh, market segments, and um, at the same time enjoy a core position in a in an origins market. But it would be, you know, it's it's it would be, I think, foolish to to think about the competitive pressure bearing on, on these firms by just looking at the segment in which they have a large market share. And um, you know, if you think about Google, I mean, Google um, of course is. Uh, very uh, dominant in in search, uh, but at the same time competes with Apple for attention on mobile devices by placing its operating system Android, and uh, and with Microsoft in software and productivity application like Docs and spreadsheets and so on, and uh, and you cannot make sense of what Google is is doing in search without making sense of what it's doing in the other markets and these dynamics work together so. I call them oligopolies. Some people call them ecosystems, and I think, in an eco, once you sort of take this perspective of big tech firms as, as ecosystems, you can see that there's a lot of complexity that the oligopoly moniker uh, tends to tends to ignore, and uh, and this is pretty bad. Now, let me just give you one, th- one, one last point about that: the behavior of these companies is inconsistent with monopoly behavior. A monopolist is A lazy company doesn't invest in R&D, doesn't invest in marketing, doesn't invest in employments. What you see here for some of these firms is investments into demand expansion that are orders of magnitude higher than what you would meet in a standard monopoly situation. So there's clearly no way, you know, just by looking at the evidence, but just also by thinking analytically to categorize these companies as monopolies.
0: What do you mean by investing in demand expansion?
1: So, you know, they are they are constantly investing into complementary products that increase value for users connected to the ecosystem. So for instance, you know, when Google adds emails, calendar functionality, navigation functionality to the search engine, every minute I spend on Google search has provides increased utility to me, being connected to, to, to the network because these complements work together to generate even more value. So, you know, it's like, it's like you know, Apple, you know, putting you into its ecosystem where the, Airpo- the AirPods work seamlessly with the iPhone, which works seamlessly with the iMac and so on. And, and so, you know, the difference between Apple and Google is that Apple does that in a way which is very closed, whereas Google does that in a way which is more modular and open. But you know, providing the and to working maybe with with less um, internal resources and relying more on external providers. But I think what matters is that these ecosystems of complementary products uh, raise the utility to consumers. And you know what I'm saying also is that the set of ecosystems that we will be using as as consumers is not is not finite. And, um, and it might change. I mean, today we have one ecosystem for search, one ecosystem for um, I don't know, handset devices and e-commerce, but uh, there might be new ecosystems of applications which will which will rise, as we saw with with Zoom during the pandemic. Um, so you know, um, it's a very it's a very dynamic
0: environment. Well, I, I think that's, that's an interesting point um, because the picture sort of tech critics give is that this is not a dynamic environment. You have these big companies. Google is dominant in search. Amazon is dominant in e-commerce. Facebook is dominant. So so there are these companies that they have this business, they dominate this business and sort of unless government acts, we are done. These are sort of forever companies who now are so powerful they cannot be challenged uh no one would fund you if you if you tried to go create a company that would challenge google and search uh, that's an example that's often given uh and they're all sort of in their little silos that they dominate and that's uh, ecosystem is the wrong word because ecosystem su- suggests it's a kind of a living breathing organic dynamic uh but rather these are sort of uh, these are sort of dead markets or, or, or unchanging, stagnant markets dominated uh, by these big companies. And that's kind of where we're at. So there's no sense that there's a dynamic, uh, evolving, uh, churning aspect. But you're saying that's not true?
1: Yeah. So I'm saying that um, it's, it's a matter of not looking in, into the right place. So, you know, any, anyone trains in a business school and you know, probably the people working in these companies and in competing companies are trained to, to think that they should not go try to compete in, in red, red ocean and they should search for a, a blue ocean. So you know, one meaning that you, know, you need to look for a, a product line where there are large margins to make and this is not in trying to commoditize what exists that you're gonna make your profits and, and find economic opportunity. And so, you know, it might be true that um, these six or five platforms that we know they have already conquered a, a red ocean. But if that's true, then you should you should you should watch elsewhere and see whether firms are trying to find blue ocean, upstream or downstream or in adjacent in adjacent markets. And so, w- when you start to do that, it's like you know the. The, the, the drunk person looking looking for the keys under the lamppost um, it's where the light is, but it's probably not where the keys are. and so if you turn your eyes away from from the red oceans and you you try to watch at the blue oceans um, you're, you're you're gonna see a lot of activity you're gonna see intense competitive entry and attempts to to penetrate these markets. So, you know, let me just give you, you know, so, yeah, if you so what, follow- what
0: are the, what are the blue oceans where these companies are attempting to sail?
1: Right. So driverless cars is like, you know, it's a sort of low hanging fruit. I mean, they're, they are all going there. Right. And, and the, the equilibrium in this market is not, it's not yet there. I mean, you know, we don't know where the value will be in the software and the, in the navigation system, in the, AI, uh, um, brain that will power all that in the, in the car itself. I mean, you know, so there's a lot of uncertainty here. And, you know, this drives like hundreds of, of millions, billions of, you know, tens of billions of dollars of, of investment every year. You know, think about B2B middleware uh, markets. You know, companies like Stripe, Salesforce, um, Zoom, Slack, Nextdoor, Twilio, Shopify. I mean, these companies did not exist 20 years ago, so I, actually, you know, the point is we are probably not looking at the right place. So we should look elsewhere, and you know, see, and there we would see a lot of activity. But also, our time horizon is 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 surprisingly short. I mean, we seem to expect more entry from digital than from any other industries, and uh, and and less stability. I mean, that's very weird.
0: Right. Um- uh, how concerned are you about, and this is a common, uh, a common criticism of these companies that they are that they're that they're purchasing all these smaller companies in order to prevent competition. Like that is the prime driver of many of their purchases. Uh, the classic example they have to give is you know Facebook buying Instagram. But even more broadly, do you think that's a problem that they're buying up too many potential competitors whose you know full potential we'll never see?
1: Right. Um, That's a great question. And uh, it's a subject of considerable importance um, because if policy decides to put an end to that practice of intense M&A with uh, small firms by big tech, then um, this will have a lot of counter incentive effects on, on, I guess, entrepreneurship and innovation. You have to know that you know, most venture capitalists which fund these small startups, they really expect this m to take place. They don't expect IPO as a, as a dominant way for a startup to, to exit the market. A, start, a startup is there to, to die to exit. And in two third or three fourths of the cases in the last evidence I saw, VC funders really expect exits by acquisition. So you certainly do not want to kill the acquisition roots for these startups to exit, so that's one thing. Uh, I think you know we have to be serious about the counterfactual world that we that we think about when we think about the ideal world, um, and the real world, and and the real world and is one in which you see a lot of MA. and this is a the normal um, the normal way to for startups to to enter and scale and and then exit. And one thing I want to add to to this is. Um, People talk about Facebook, Instagram all the time, had the canonical example of something that went wrong with policy, policy failure. We didn't didn't prohibit Facebook from acquiring Instagram. Now, people tend to forget the type of, you know, market environment in which Facebook was when it acquired Instagram. I mean, we were, I can't recall where, but somewhere close to the financial crisis. Facebook was a very young, uh publicly listed company. There was a lot of uncertainty around it. And you know, and what happened after? I mean, Facebook didn't kill Instagram. It scaled Instagram like, you know, really, really big. So this idea of killer acquisitions where large big tech firms acquire small startups to kill them, I mean, Facebook, Instagram is clearly not the best example to use. The firm Instagram, the capabilities of Instagram as... Have been grown and increased to a huge extent under Facebook ownership. So I, you know, you might be unhappy today, but uh, back in the day, this was not obvious. And uh, clearly, when you when look at the history, we can see um, we can see that we've not seen a killing. We've seen uh, we've seen growth.
0: It's I mean it's unclear to me um, if we had separate Facebook and Instagram companies and we had i don't know uh you know google north google east google west google south and we had all these break that how it's not clear to me how that would deal with the issues which are commonly brought up as the biggest problems with with uh these big tech companies issues about privacy about what we thought might call fake news uh about hate speech i don't understand how antitrust is the solution to these problems it seems like that's the most uh, there are individual companies for instance that complain about how they're listed on on uh on the google uh on, on on the first page of google search results or something and where they're located but that doesn't seem to be to be an antitrust issue that would be solved if we if there were two googles um it seems to be that the antitrust seems to be just the most obvious especially to politicians uh, thing to talk about, because we have this history of you know antitrust in this country and we and these are big companies, and we remember other big companies in the past a t and t and standard oil. but I don't really understand the relationship between the most common critiques of these companies and antitrust as the solution.
1: i agree i think there's you know there's there's two lines to that um to that uh, argument that, uh, for breakups um, so one is one is i think emotional to some extent. So some people are angry with these big companies and they want to, they want to do something about them. And
0: a breakup they want is- to, emo- They want to break them. They don't want to break them up. You see, they just want to, it's, it's almost as a punitive- ass- Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. So that's exactly what I had in mind. I mean, this it's sort of vindictive, punitive you know, way to show muscle and show that, you know, who's the boss here? And, and so you know, we're going to break you. So that's as a sort of emotional way to act on a perceived uh, frustration about policy, and uh, you know, do something. So that's a sort of emotional line of, of analysis, uh, and then there's of course the sort of more analytical, you know, uh, idea, which is okay. You know, when we, when you break up some, so when you break up companies in in multiple segments or uh, subsidiaries or business units, then you are going to create competition by rivalry, right? And so rivalry will lead to better outcomes because competition is generally a good thing. And this idea ignores uh, 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 two, two problems. So if you create rivalry, what's going to happen is you're going to raise outputs. So now if you complain about the existence of fake news or not enough privacy or too much personalized advertisements, you know, you don't want to raise outputs. Right? I mean, you have to be consistent. You don't want to raise the output, the number of news. You don't want to raise the number of ads. You don't want to raise raise competition for personalization. So that's one. And the second thing is um, economic theory documents and shows very clearly that um, there are large network effects on the supply and the demand side. So you're going to lose a lot of efficiency if you, if you break these companies into multiple business
0: units. These big tech companies—they're American companies. Why do I? Why are not half of the biggest tech companies European companies? Wow, well, that's a very hard question.
1: I mean, if I knew that, I would be a, probably a billionaire. I—I'm right? I
0: I, guessing there's some discussion about this in Europe.
1: I would be a policy failure, as you as you said before. <laughs> uh, but uh, look, you know, um, I think Europe has. Um, a bunch of structural, cultural and, and economic problems that explain, explain that. So the, the cultural problem is that, you know, I think Europeans are generally more risk averse um, than American entrepreneurs. The structural problem is that we don't really have a single market contrary to what um, you know, people often say. And uh, you, know, you have to realize that very trivial things like opening a bank account from one country to the other in Europe is very difficult if you are not a resident of the country. So, you know, think about a startup willing to expand the number of geographic markets in which it's operating in Europe. I mean, this is, you know, already a, a hurdle. And, um, and, uh, um, so you have these problems and of course, you know, there are, you know, things like language, uh, in Europe has many, many languages and, uh, and this is, a this puts a brake on, um, mobility, uh, labor and mobility, um, and uh, and this explains uh, a lot of things, I believe.
0: Um, Do you think any of it has to do with specific public policies, whether it's taxes or regulation, anything like that?
1: I, I don't think, okay, so if you take the existing policy that we're that we're seeing emerging in, in Europe. And it's, uh, you know, so Europe is about to adopt. Uh,
0: and w- w- one reason I asked that, I, me- I remember reading a financial times piece saying that Europe has decided that regulation of technology was going to be its compare, <laughs> it's going to be its comparative advantage. That doesn't sound very entrepreneurial to me.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. I mean, exactly. I think there's, there's often the belief in policy circles that you can create and promote innovation by legislation. Okay. And, uh, And, you know, some people and uh, some people have referred to that uh, in the academia as um, as uh, the Brussels effect. Um, And and, you know, so the Brussels effect is about Brussels dictating norms and standards for the worldwide um, community. But um, there's also this idea in the in, in, in the policy community that the Brussels effect is also, you know, trying to. To create innovation by legislation, I, I, you know, I prefer to call that the Brussels defect, um, mm-hmm. because I don't think that's, you know, this is the way to, this is the way to create um, innovation. One thing that's, so one thing, one sort of deep ingrained belief in Brussels is that conscience creates innovation, and I think it, this this has, you know, a lot of truth to it. But I think that it's probably more true. That innovation creates competition, you know, much as Joseph Schumpeter, you know, said before. And I think Brussels is too much in, into the consumption creates innovation, and not enough into the innovation creates competition paradigm.
0: In the past, there have been technology companies that seem to be permanently dominant, like Nokia and MySpace. People thought they might be around forever, but then they were replaced by new companies. Do you think these current companies are just so powerful and so wealthy? this process of churn has ended. Will today's tech giants still be the same dominant tech giants 20 or 25 years from now?
1: That's a great point because it's true that you know it's been a while since we've seen a Nokia or a MySpace um, in the tech community. And it's true that it's been a while as well that Google and Facebook and, uh, and Amazon has been, have been around. Now, you know what I said before is maybe we're just not looking in the right place uh, and there's a lot of indirect entry. The other thing is the the history of innovation suggests that often platforms or innovation arrives all at once. so there are you know windows in in history in which most of the innovative deliveries uh, come at the same time around the same time space, and you have to wait until the next window. so all that's pretty well documented and, um, and, and, um, and it's not a surprise. Now, I would nonetheless submit that um, there is a lot of indirect entry. These firms are also extremely flexible. I mean, a company like Google could have experienced a near-death near predicament when, um, when Apple created uh, the smartphone industry with the iPhone. And, you know, they were very clever to have the capabilities to scale Android. They had acquired Android a little while ago and they invested a lot into that to stay on top of, of the business. And so you you cannot discount the dynamism that goes behind, you know, all these apparent monopoly positions. And, and so, you know, I, I hear people say, oh, you know, Facebook has been a monopoly for 10 years. I'm like, you know, that's. That's an interesting question, but the more interesting question is: Is Facebook today the same firm as it was ten years ago?
0: And there's a reason to think these companies will not. They may be big and powerful, but they will not be exactly the same companies ten years ago. This is it's, it's not a story of stagnation. Exactly. My guest today has been Nicola Petit. Nicola, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Great to be with you, Jim.